every time I talk about this subject, it's exciting. The psalm we read, uh, Psalm 148, is a really cool psalm. I don't know if you noticed that, everybody, um, but it is a really cool psalm. Uh, For example, one of the really neat things about that psalm is it tells us that dragons are real. Um, It must be true because the Bible says it. I don't know if you noticed that. Verse 7, praise the Lord from the earth, ye dragons. So, yeah. It's there in the Bible. Uh, And if you go hunting, you'll also find uh, unicorns in the Psalms, which is pretty exciting. There's all sorts of interesting things, and the Bible's a book full of treasures. So just a thought there. Uh, This is a wonderful Psalm, not just because it's got dragons, but because it's a Psalm of the kingdom, a Psalm of the future. It speaks of a time when everybody from kings all the way down to children will praise God. It's a time when God's name will be the one that's praised and not other things. When when God will rule over all the earth. And, and look at verse 14. Um, kids, there's something really interesting in verse 14. He says, he exalts the horn of his people. That's a kind of strange thing to say. I don't know about you, but I don't have a horn. I'm a man, not a rhinoceros. And, and so it's you have to wonder, what does it mean when it says he exalts the horn of his people? Well, what it's talking about is strength or power. In the Bible, a horn is a symbol of something that you use to push your bulldozer, somebody out of your way. That, that's what a goat would do. A goat would use its horns to bulldozer its enemies out of its way. And, and he's, he's using it in the same way. He's saying, look, I will exalt the strength of my people, the strength of the saints in the kingdom age. This is a wonderful psalm about a time when the earth will be filled with his glory and the saints, the believers, will be able to do good things throughout the world because they've been given power by God. And, of course, the reason we chose it is verse 8. Fire and hail and snow and vapours, stormy wind fulfilling God's word. And that's what we're going to talk about this afternoon. If you go back one chapter, we've got Psalm 147, and that's a, that's a chapter with similarly exciting things in it. But particularly, I want you to notice verse 15 on. God sends forth his commandment upon the earth. His word runs very swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the hoarfrost like ashes. He casts forth his ice like morsels. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He causes his wind to blow and the waters flow. He shows his word unto Jacob's statutes and his judgment unto unto Israel. So in these Psalms, what we're learning is something really important. And that is that God uses weather to do things about the Bible. Weather is used to support the things that God is doing through his word, the Bible, and particularly prophecy. So when God says such and such a thing will come to pass at a particular time, God is saying, I can and I do use the weather to make sure that my words are fulfilled. 
uh, we know that that's a power that God has because it's a power he gave his son. And we're not going to turn it up, but in Matthew chapter 8, verse 27, the men in Jesus's boat marveled and said, what manner of man is this, that even the wind and the waves and the sea obey him because he'd stood there in the middle of a raging storm on the middle of a bucking deck in the middle of the sea. The, the sail of the ship had been torn to shreds and the sailors on that ship, his disciples, who had been out on that sea every day for year upon year upon year, they knew the sea well, were absolutely terrified. They didn't know what to do. And he just stood up and said, peace be still. And the storm was gone. Jesus, God's son, had complete control of the weather. And God, of course, does too, as we're going to see. And he uses it to make things happen. So um, this is meant to be an interactive session, um, which is tricky because I can't hear any of you. From where I sit, you're, I can see you, but I can't hear you. So what we're going to do is this way. Now and again, I'm going to ask questions and I'd invite you to answer. Um, but just imagine that I'm a very deaf and elderly uncle. I'm going to be that sort of uncle who hears the answer he thinks he should hear. Um, and you're welcome to shout out answers. If I ask a question to, to, to say something, you're absolutely welcome to do that. Um, and I will pretend that I've actually heard you and say, that's an excellent answer um, and, and put something completely different up on the screen. So with that in mind, let's proceed. Weather. What do we mean when we talk about weather? Can someone give us an example of some weather? No one. No one was bold enough. Come on. Someone must give us an example of some weather. Yeah, go. Fire away. Yep, speak. And that's an excellent answer that I didn't hear at all. But I, I'm assuming you're going to say one of these. This is what I'm assuming you said. You either said hurricane or cyclone, storm Hail, floods, fire, tornado, drought, snow, gale, El Nino or La Nina, frost or heat wave. All of those things are weather. There's all sorts of wild weather out there. It's not just storms. And today we're not just going to talk about storms. We're going to talk about wild weather. And we're going to extend our definition just a little bit as well. We're going to include earthquakes. We're going to include meteors, although we're not talking about meteors particularly today that would be really cool if we were we're going to talk about volcanoes we'll definitely talk about them and at the very very end we're going to have a video of a tsunami so weather all sorts of weather that god could use and we're going to talk about some of that in the next um so long and we're going to look at four main stories now for some of you these will be really they won't make any sense don't worry we'll get to it we'll try and explain what's going on in these stories once we get to it but we've got four main stories we want to talk about this afternoon we're going to talk about how god used weather in the reign of justinian and justinian is the last of the roman emperors um he's that ugly looking fellow you can see there at the top 
We're also going to talk about the fall of Constantinople. And you can see a picture next to that that is actually a picture of Kublai Khan, who was a Mongolian warlord. We're going to talk about the rise of Britain. And you can see a picture next to the words about the rise of Britain. And that's a picture of Sir Francis Drake, who was, in fact, a British pirate. We'll talk about him. And finally, we're going to talk about the French Revolution. And the picture we've chosen to symbolize the French Revolution is a picture of Robespierre, who was a French lawyer who was known as the soul of terror. So we're going to talk about these stories. And as we go through the stories, what you'll notice in the bottom left hand corner of every every page I put up is a picture of one of these people. And that's to help you understand where we are and what we're talking about. So, for example, in this next one, you're going to see that there is a picture of Justinian in the lower corner. And that's because we're talking about how God used weather in the time of Justinian. Whenever you see this picture, you know I'm talking about how God used weather in the time of Justinian. Okay, so what you're looking at on the screen is what scientists have measured. It's, it's, it's a chart that shows the variations in temperature um, around the world um, over the last 2,000 or so years. And what you can see is that the weather, the temperature has gone up and down. It's varied. It's gone all over the place. But, but I want to point out one particular place, and that's right here. Can you see how there's a bit of a dip there in the temperature? How, how the white line that marks the average temperature is lower than in other places. It, it, there was a sudden cold spell in the early 500s. Now, you might say, well, how do they know that? How can they possibly know that 1,500 years ago, it was a bit nippy? How could they know that? Well, they've got lots of ways. Lots of you will know that if you cut down a tree, the tree has rings. This is a picture of, of a big tree that's been cut down and the rings of that tree. And you can actually work out from that tree whether the, it was a, a good year for trees growing or a bad year for trees growing. If the year was extremely cold or extremely dry, that would be a bad year. If the year is nice and warm and wet, that would be a good year for trees growing. And so if we expand part of this tree, you can see, oh, look, see how there's a really fat, thick ring there? That means that the tree grew a lot that year. It was a good year for growing. So it was nice and warm with plenty of water. But this one here, this ring, is very thin. And what that indicates is that um, there wasn't much water and it was probably really cold. So by chopping down trees, we can work out the temperature at various different points in time. Uh, but the problem is you need to find trees that are about ooh, 2,000 years old in order to do the sorts of science we were looking at a minute ago. To get that graph that goes all the way back to the time of Jesus, you'd have to go and find all these really old trees and chop them down. And probably... 
there would be some people who were pretty, would be pretty upset if you chopped down their 2,000-year-old tree just to find out what the weather was like a few years back. That's not actually what they did. In order to work out the temperature, they looked at trees, but it was, they looked at trees that had already been chopped down. They took trees that have been used to make old buildings. So, for example, they looked at the roof beams in ancient churches. And by looking at the rings inside the beams of wood that were used to support the roof, they were able to work out how, how hot or cold it was on a particular year. They didn't just do that. They did a bunch of other things. They also looked at ice and what you're looking at there is a video of an ice core being removed and and they go to places like the arctic and the antarctic and they take these big long tubes of ice out of the ground they drill them out of the ground and and because the ice is is laid down in layers each winter there's a new layer of snow and then summer comes and then the winter again there's a new layer of snow if they look at how much snow there is and how compressed that snow is they can make some sort of conclusions about the temperature at different years you can also use silt at the bottom of uh, of lakes and also the bleaching of coral to help you work out temperature throughout the years so this is how they did it so the point at which we were looking just then, uh, we were looking at the chart and we saw there was a cold patch in about 500s, the, the early 500s. What was happening in the early 500s? Well, in the early 500s, the Byzantine Empire was at its greatest extent. Now, the Byzantine Empire was what became of the Roman Empire after the two halves of the Roman Empire split apart, the two legs of iron, if you remember Daniel's image, and the western half of the Roman Empire got defeated by barbarians. The eastern half was called the Byzantine Emperor. And under a very unpleasant man by the name of Justinian, he's the one on the picture uh, on the screen, and you're probably wondering, how on earth did you get a photo of Justinian? Um, we just uh, we just did. There you go. Photo of Justinian. Um, he was the emperor who built the Byzantine Empire up to its greatest extent. But see, there's a problem here. And the problem was this, that God had determined that the Byzantine Empire should shrink and should be threatened. We're not going to turn there, but in Revelation 8 and 9, God had determined that the Byzantine Empire must be shrunken and diminished by the rise of the Arabic nations. But the problem was the Byzantine Empire was too strong. It was a very, very strong empire. And there was no space or scope for the Arab nations to grow and to become a threat. Well, what happened? How did God make it so that the Byzantine Empire could grow large enough to threaten the empire of the Byzantines? Well, this is what he did. <clears throat> 
536. This is from a guy by the name of Flavius Cassiodorus, and he wrote a diary. And in his diary, he talked about the weather. And he said of 536, the sun seems to have lost its wanted light and appears blue in color. We marvel to see no shadows of our bodies at noon to feel the mighty vigor of the sun's heat wasted into feebleness. And, and he goes on to say for a whole year, it's been freezing cold. The crops haven't grown. Nothing has gone right this year. 536. Another person writing much, much later, but writing about the same period of time said this. The sun became dark and its darkness lasted for 18 months. Each day it shone for about four hours and still this light was only a feeble shadow. Everyone declared the sun would never recover its full light. The fruits didn't ripen and the wine tasted like sour grapes. So 536 was a year when the weather was very, very strange. There was something wrong with the weather in Justinian's Byzantine Empire. Well, what had happened? Well, amazingly, on the other side of the world, in, in Central America, a mountain called Ilopango, TBJ, was busy blowing up. Now, just in case you're wondering, the video you're looking at is not a video from the time of Justinian of that mountain blowing up. This is a different mountain. But nonetheless, this mountain, Ilopango, used to be a mountain. But by the time the eruption had finished, it was a lake. This happened in modern day El Salvador, and it, it threw so much dust and rock and other chemicals into the atmosphere that it caused what was called a so-called dust veil. In other words, the entire world was, was dusty for a full 18 months because of this explosion. It threw tons and tons, 84 cubic kilometers of rock was pulverized into the dust into dust and and thrown high into the atmosphere now just so you can get an idea of the scale of what it would mean if 84 cubic kilometers of rock was pulverized and thrown into the sky this here is a chart that shows the different scale of different types of volcanoes. Uh, you can see that there's some really small volcanoes at the bottom, and then there's there's larger ones at the top. So here we go. Here's a small one, the Mono Inyo crater, really tiny. Mount St. Helens, which none of you will remember, but happened in my lifetime. We thought that was a big explosion, but as volcanoes go, it actually wasn't particularly big. Mount Pinatubo, which exploded in 1991 in, uh, in the Philippines, it threw out about 10 kilometers, 10 cubic kilometers of rock when it exploded. And it's still not a big volcano. In fact, these different scales, uh, these different sizes of volcanoes have names. The names are level three. So that's this level here, level three is called 
catastrophic. Level four, cataclysmic. Level five, paroxysmic. Level six, colossal. Level seven, mega colossal. You can sense that they were running out of words. Level eight, down here, apocalyptic. Now, just so you get an idea of how big this is, one of the biggest volcanoes most people have ever heard of is called Krakatoa. Krakatoa, um, through uh, ash 80 kilometers straight up into the sky and throughout 21 square kilometers of rock, it darkened the sky for years and it caused the entire temperature of the world to drop for over a degree and that temperature drop was measurable for over 10 years. That's Krakatoa. Now, the volcano we're talking about here is something like 10 to 100 times greater than Krakatoa. All right, but we still probably don't understand how big this is. So I'm going to show you a picture to try and get you to get an idea of how big these explosions, these volcanoes actually are. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at a picture, a video of the biggest bomb ever dropped in world history. Here it is. You ready? So this is 3,300 times bigger than Hiroshima. This is a Russian nuclear weapon called the Tsar Bomba, the, the Tsar's bomb. And, and that mushroom cloud, the video footage, oh, watch the ground, watch the ground. Ready? Whoosh. Did you see that? Now, this video was taken from 160 kilometers away from the bomb drop site. And it shows a mushroom cloud that by the time it's finished is going to be 56 kilometers high. This one bomb is bigger than if you got every single bomb, every single bullet, every single piece of munition fired in the entire Second World War and put it into one package. This one bomb. And this one bomb is smaller than Mount St. Helens. The explosion that we're talking about that made the weather cold during the reign of Justinian was about here, bigger than Krakatoa, bigger than Tambora. It was huge. And so what followed was a cooling of global temperatures. And because global temperatures cooled, because the sun was less effective, famine and drought and starvation and flooding and the spread of disease. At this point in time, the empire had just started to recover from the, from the barbarian hordes. And now this, the weather changes and crops don't grow. But not just that, something else happened. This is, this is what happened next. What you're looking at is a picture of a man's hand who has got the Black Plague. The Black Plague happened during, during the reign of Justinian. It's, a pestilence broke out and an entire towns died of this disease. Now, this might fail seem very, very real, very, very relevant. A plague, a global plague brought out. One person said this, thus it happened in my case. 
For I deem it fitting and due adaption of circumstances to insert also in this history matters relating to myself, that at the commencement of this calamity, I was seized with what are termed buboes while still a schoolboy and lost by its recurrence at different times, several of my children, my wife and many of my kin, as well as my domestic and country servants. Here's a man who says, I lost children and wife and family and servants because of this terrible disease. Procipius says this, during these times, there was a pestilence by which the whole human race came near to being annihilated. Now the disease in Byzantium ran a course of four months and its greatest virulence lasted three. And at the first, the deaths were a little more than normal. Then the mortality rose still higher and afterwards the tale of dead reached 5,000 each day. Now that's meaningful to us right now, isn't it? We understand what they're talking about. As much as half of the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, died. There were reports of completely unmanned ships washing ashore because everybody on them had died, of monasteries being completely wiped out and being found with nobody in them. And what caused this terrible disease? Well, this thing, a flea. Now, the flea that you're looking at on your left-hand side is a normal flea. The one on the right-hand side is a flea that has got this plague, the Black Death, otherwise known as Eucena pestis. Now, what this plague does is it does something very interesting to the flea. I don't know if you can see it there, but I'll, I'll circle it. Can you see that black section on the flea? That's a blockage in the flea's gut. And, and when this part of the flea gets blocked, it always feels hungry. And the consequence of that is even though it's full, it will keep on feeding and feeding and feeding and feeding and never stop because of the blockage. Now, this blockage only occurs in certain circumstances. Even if the, the flea has got this disease, it will only get this blockage if the temperature is below 25 degrees. Cooler temperatures make the plague flourish and spread in a way it never will in hotter weather. In hotter weather, that blockage doesn't form. The fleas don't feed and feed and feed. They just feed once and stops. The infection doesn't spread very fast. And so there's this direct relationship between temperature and the speed with which the fleas infect people. But there's something else as well. You see, there just happens to be a direct relationship between the chariot of a flea and temperature as well. You're probably thinking, well, what's the chariot of a flea? I'll show you. This is a flea's chariot. And what there's a, a bizarre thing that happens. They've, they've actually studied it and they've discovered that when the temperature drops, rats start breeding and they breed fast. But not only that, because the temperature is dropping, the rats are driven indoors where people are and and because these particular fleas uh, rats are carrying fleas that means there's many many more chances for people to be infected and to be bitten by the flea still 
it doesn't explain how this plague broke out. You see, it appears that this particular plague came from North Africa, the Great Lakes of Africa. And it appears that it had always been there. You think, well, if it's always been there, why didn't people get sick with it earlier? Why didn't it arrive in Europe long before this? Well, the reason is it's normally very, very warm in North Africa. It's normally above 25 degrees. And so the fleas wouldn't get the blockage that would cause them to bite and bite and bite. So only a few people would get the plague. And secondly, there weren't that many rats to carry fleas around. And thirdly, the rats weren't going into people's houses. And so as a consequence, there wasn't really that much infection and it never got to Europe. But now there's been a volcano exploding on the other side of the world. The temperature has dropped globally. The consequence of that is the temperature dropped in Europe and Europe's crops failed. They desperately needed food. So they sent to North Africa, the grain bowl of the Roman Empire, and they say, send us food, send us food. Well, the food was still growing there, but even still the temperature dropped there too. And now the African fleas have got the blockage. The rats are breeding like never before. They're carrying them inside where to? Well, into the grain silos, of course, where grain is being collected to be sent to a hungry Europe. And on board those grain shipments came hundreds, thousands, maybe even millions of rats with infected fleas. And they arrived in a Europe in which the people were already weakened from a whole year of starvation. (laughs) it was the perfect storm. Before the plague, Byzantine, Justinian's Byzantine Empire had been growing and growing. There was no space or scope for the growth of the Arabic kingdoms. But God had said in Revelation, the Arabic caliphate will rise. After the plague, Justinian's Rome shrunk swiftly and very, very soon the Arabic caliphate grew in its place in the territory vacated by a weakened empire. Isn't that amazing? God used a volcano on the other side of the world to change the behaviour of fleas to affect the behaviour of rats, to increase the demand for grain that came from a place with rats and fleas. And the consequence of that was Bible prophecy was fulfilled. Amazing. All right, on to our next one. Revelation chapter 9, verse 14 and 15, and again, we won't turn to it, talks about a time when four angels who are pinned up by the river Euphrates are released. And this is a prophecy speaking, according to Brother Thomas, of a time when four Arabic nations will be released to attack what was left of the Byzantine Empire. The four nations, the four empires of the Arabs that would attack the Byzantine Empire, were the Seljuks, the Mongols, the Tatars, and the Ottomans. And between them, it was their job to destroy the Byzantine Empire in fulfillment of the prophecy that John had received from Jesus Christ. 
Each of these four would have to have their time in the sun. Each of them would have a duty to perform in destroying the wicked Byzantine Empire in the Eastern Roman Empire. But what's even more impressive is that Revelation chapter 9 verse 14 specified how long this would take. It specified that these four angels would have to perform their work in, well, this is what Revelation says. It said within a year and a month and a, what was it? Pardon me. I'll get it right. A year, a day, a month, a week. Uh, sorry, I'll get it right. One more try. One hour, one day, one month, and one year. And when you add up all those periods, one hour, one day, one month, one year, you get 391 days, one hour. And if you take the Bible prophecy uh, technique of turning days into years, they were given 391 years and one month to complete their work. These four angels, the Seljuks, the Mongols, the Tatars, and the Ottomans, had 391 years, one month, to complete their work. Now, just remember, God has said this is how long it will take before time. It's written by John long before these kingdoms have even become kingdoms, before the Seljuks have even become Seljuks. God has said exactly how long they have to complete the destruction of the Byzantine Empire. So timing is going to be critical, isn't it? From the period when the first Seljuk arrives on the scene through to the fall of Constantinople has to be timed intricately. And in fact, it looks that it's meant to be timed down to the day. So how did that work? How did God make sure that the timing happened absolutely perfectly? Well, we're not going to talk particularly about the Seljuks. They had their time in the sun and they chipped away at the Byzantine Empire, attacking again and again, and gradually they declined and were replaced by the second empire, the Mongols. But the Mongols presented a little bit of a problem because, well, the Mongols were perhaps the greatest army ever to emerge out of China. And very swiftly, this horse-mounted uh, uh, horse army expanded eastward and westward. And it looked like, for a very short time, it looked like the Mongols would actually finish the job, that they would push all of the way, as you can see, all of the way into Turkey and capture the Byzantine Empire completely. Now, just, just so I've shown you, this territory here, oops, that's meant to be a pen, that territory there is what's left of the Byzantine Empire. Oops, that wasn't very helpful, was it? So this territory is what's left of the Byzantine Empire. And, and for a long time, it looked like the Mongols would actually finish off the job and complete the destruction of the Byzantine Empire. And the problem with that is that it would have ruined God's timing. God's timing would have been destroyed. He said it would take 391 years, one month. If it happened in 260 years, God would be proved to be a liar. But you see, on the other side of the world, something really interesting was happening. The emperor of the Mongols 
a man, a man named Kubla Khan had decided that in addition to taking on the rest of the world, he was going to invade Japan. And he invaded Japan with his navy. Many say it was the biggest navy in history. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But a storm blew up. And it destroyed his navy. So the next year, he built another navy. And a huge storm blew up and destroyed that one too. And Kublai Khan gave up in defeat. But this defeat was so crushing and so great that from this point on, the Mongols were in decline and they ceased to threaten Constantinople and the Byzantine Empire in the far west. In fact, this is where we get the word kamikaze from. The Japanese word kamikaze comes from this event. The divine wind is what kamikaze means. Divine wind. And a divine wind is what destroyed Kublai Khan. God used the storm, the kamikaze, to stop Kublai Khan from conquering the Byzantine Empire too early. And then came the Tatars. Now, the Tatars had a very interesting role. You see, the Tatars actually didn't really do any damage at all to the Ottomans. They, their purpose was different. You see, this man here, Timurlane or Timur the Lane, he did really only one thing. He fought the angel that was going to follow him, the Ottomans. He attacked them again and again and again. And all Timurlane was doing was slowing the Ottomans down. It was to be the Ottomans' job finally to destroy the Byzantine Empire and capture Constantinople. But but they were they were moving too fast. They were getting there too soon. And so Timurlane attacked them and slowed them down. I'm sure he didn't know that that was what his purpose was. He thought his purpose was to become a great ruler. But in reality, all his job was, was to slow the work of the Ottomans down. And then when the time was right, God took him out of the scene. You see, Timurlane went east to fight the Ming dynasty in China. And when he got there, he discovered he was in the middle of one of the bitterest winters on record. His troops are recorded as having to dig through as much as five feet of solid ice in order to reach drinking water. And the consequence of that was his army was decimated and he came back in despair and soon died and his empire died with him. But the timing now was perfectly right. He had delayed the Ottomans' attack on Constantinople by 50 years. And so now the timing was right. The Ottomans could begin to make war against Constantinople, and they did so. And on May the 29th, on 1453, exactly 391 years, one month after the, Seljuk, the Seljuks first became an empire, and first started their war on the Byzantine Empire, the Byzantine Empire fell to the Ottomans. Isn't that amazing? God again used weather. He used the kamikaze against 
Kubla Khan. He used an incredible winter to take Timurlane out of the way. And, and in fact, by the way, he actually used a volcano to help the Ottomans win. One of the reasons that the Ottomans were able to break into the city of Constantinople Constantinople on the very day they did is because someone opened the door and the reason they opened the door is because they thought Constantinople was on fire and they thought Constantinople was on fire because they saw a reflection in the river in the sea they thought there was a reflection in the river in the sea because the sky was extremely red the sky was extremely red because on the other side of the world yet another volcano was erupting and turning the sunsets redder than they had been in a hundred years. And the consequence was Constantinople fell on the day it fell. Amazing. So let's move on to the next one. We need to talk about pirates. So Brother Thomas spoke about Britain. And he said, there is then a partial and primary restoration of the Jews before the manifestation, which is to serve as the nucleus or basis of future operations and the restoration of the rest of the tribes after he's appeared in the kingdom. That's a very long way of saying the Jews are going to go back to the promised land before Jesus Christ returns. He goes on to say that he believed that the Jews would return to the promised land supported by the British power. And he understood that from Bible prophecy. Bible prophecy told Brother Thomas that the British were required in order to bring the Jews back to the promised land in our day. Now, for a long time, that looked very, very unlikely. The two charming looking individuals on the screen in front of you are Prince Philip II of Spain, a man who always wore black, who never ate lavish meals and actually liked to hurt himself. He was not a nice man at all. And the person on the left was Mrs. King Philip. Her name was Queen Mary of England. And this was a problem because they were both very, very good Catholics and they hated the Jews. But when... Uh, Queen Mary died, her half-sister, Queen Liz, came to power. Here she is. Here's Queen Liz. Now, Queen Liz was a Protestant. And she was also not married to Prince uh, to King Philip of Spain. And what that meant is England was no longer Catholic. It was now Protestant. And England was no longer under the heel of King Philip of Spain. Now, King Philip did for a while consider marrying her, but somehow he never really got round to it, given she was a Protestant and all. And eventually he sided with an enemy of Queen Liz called Mary, Queen of Scots. And at that point, things got really ugly. Eventually, Queen Liz imprisoned Mary, Queen of Scots and, and finally got so frustrated, she chopped her head off. And then Queen Liz did something very silly. She went and supported the Dutch Protestants. In other words, those who disagreed with Catholicism in, uh, in the Netherlands. And these Dutch Protestants were revolting against King Philip, who at the time ruled the Netherlands. And so uh, King Philip of Spain decided, well, I've had enough of Queen Liz. I'm going to invade and make England Catholic again. Now, let's just remind ourselves, this is important because if 
the Spanish rule Britain, Britain will be Catholic. The Catholics do not support the Jewish cause. And therefore, the prophecy that states that the Jews will come back to the promised land because they're helped by the British will fail. So what happened? Well, there's a problem. If you're going to invade Spain, if you're going to invade Britain from Spain, you can't walk. And it's going to require a very large bridge. And so what Philip decided to do was build a big group of ships known as an armada. In Philip's case, it was called the Spanish Armada, mainly because it was Spanish. And he collected 130 ships, over 8,000 sailors and 18,000 soldiers, and he loaded them onto the ships. And he sent them off to go and fight against Queen Liz and conquer England for him. Now, the British actually had more ships. They had 200 ships. Unfortunately, they weren't collected into a navy. They were just a whole lot of guys who liked going out in boats. Um, and, and so they weren't very unified. And, and they had another major problem, and it was this. They had 50% less guns on their ships than did the Spanish. And not only that, Queen Liz was a notorious stinge. She didn't want to pay for anything. And so she refused to pay for the Navy. And so the Navy had to buy its own ammunition. That was a real problem. So what happened is the Spanish Armada came off Spain and headed up towards Britain. And then Sir Francis Drake, the notorious pirate, and he was, that was his job. His job was to be a government-sponsored pirate. He got this sort of collected sort of navy out into the British Channel to face off against the Spanish Armada. And um, there was a famous battle called the Battle of Gravelines. Now, what the Battle of Gravelines was about was this, that the Spanish Armada had come further up the coast next to Britain and it sort of pulled into France at a place called Gravelines to pick up some more, more soldiers. It was shallow water so that they, they could easily get the soldiers out. And what Sir Francis Drake did is he sent a whole lot of fire ships in to try and set fire to the Spanish Armada. It didn't work. He sent these fire ships in. They, they, so a fire ship is a, is a boat on fire and you send it into someone else's boat and hope it'll crash into their boat and catch their boat on fire as well. This is what Sir Francis Drake had come up with. And um, this was mainly because he was running out of ammunition. So he thought, I'll send these fire ships in. But unfortunately, not a single Spanish ship was hurt by these fire ships. Not one. But here's what did happen. And this is really important. Because the Spanish saw the fire ships coming, they needed to get out of the way in a hurry. And they did it very well. But they did it by cutting the line to their anchors. And what that meant is that none of the Spanish vessels had anchors anymore. Now, to start with, that didn't make a lot of difference. Out came the Spanish ships out of Gravelines and, and faced off against the British once again. And the British fought them from dawn until four o'clock. And then finally, the British ran out of gunpowder. By which time, the Spanish had only lost five ships out of their huge fleet. A tiny, tiny number. And the British had to go back to harbour for more ammunition. All this really did was won the British a little bit of breathing space. And that is all that Sir Francis Drake did to win 
the battle with the Spanish Armada. Here's what happened next. You see, the Spanish Armada fought here at Gravelines, and then they thought, well, we really want to be attacking Britain down here. This is where we want to attack Britain. But unfortunately, there was a prevailing wind. And so they were blown up here by the prevailing wind all the way up here. And when they got up to the top of Scotland, they thought, well, we really don't want to live in Scotland. It's too cold. And so they came around the top of Britain and they thought, what we'll do is we'll just do a loop the loop. But unfortunately, they got to about here and a massive storm struck them. By this point, the, the, the ships were already starting to show wear and tear from their long voyage. And they were having to wrap ropes around the bottom of the boats to hold them together so they didn't start linking and sinking. Supplies of food and water were running short. And the cavalry horses had already been thrown overboard into the sea. Into the sea. But you see, a massive storm came swirling out of the Atlantic. And guess what? See, none of these boats had anchors. This is why they couldn't stop. They didn't have anchors, so they couldn't stop. They had to keep sailing until they could find somewhere that was happy to see them. And they kept sailing and they were going to do the loop, the loop, but they couldn't stop. And so when the storm hit them, they couldn't harbor. They couldn't stop. They couldn't go anywhere. They just had to run before the storm. And you can see where they all sunk here. And here, and here, and here, and here, and here, they sunk again and again. In the end of the massive armada, less than 67 ships survived. In fact, you, you may have noticed that many Irish people have got interesting names like the Santos and the Torre, Irish people. And the reason those Irish people have got those Spanish names is because the Spanish armada mainly crashed on island and lots of shipwrecked Spanish mariners ended up in Ireland. Now, where did that storm come from? Well, it was the middle of what was called the Little Ice Age. The late 1600s were famous for terrible storms and particularly 1688, the year this happened. Massive storms sweeping out of the Atlantic and poor old King Philip's army just happened to get caught with one. And, and you know what? The British knew, they knew that they'd had nothing to do with winning that battle. At the end of the battle with the Spanish Armada, they minted or coined a medal. And the medal said on it, Flavit Jehovah et Dissipati Sunt, which means God blew with his winds and they were scattered. And because of that, Britain grew into a great empire, an empire that spanned the globe from sunrise to sunset. By every possible measure, the British Empire at its peak was the greatest empire the world was ever known. And as a consequence of that, they were in a position to help the Jews return to Israel after the Second World War. And God did it using a storm. On to our last one. For those of you who are flagging, here we go. 
in Revelation chapter 11, God spoke to the two witnesses and he said unto them that they would prophesy for a thousand two hundred and three score years. Again, God had a specific time period. And the starting point was a time was 529 because in 529 Justinian attempted to unify various codes and rules um, and what he did was he recognized the Pope as the head of all the churches. This was the beginning of the strength of Catholicism but that specific period of time that God had established must elapse before the Roman Empire, uh, sorry, before the papacy could be punished. So 1,260 years after the work of Justinian, Bible students should have expected to see the end of this period in which the Roman Catholic Church would be punished. And of course, those of you who have done Bible study know how this worked out. It was the French Revolution. But how was it that God precisely timed the events of the French Revolution so that they occurred exactly when they occurred and not five years earlier or 10 years later? How did he make sure that that was when they occurred? Well, on June the 8th, 1783, Laki, a volcano in... Iceland erupted. This eruption is easily the most deadly eruption in recorded history. It wasn't that it was that big. It's what it did. This particular eruption caused huge amounts of poisonous smoke to billow out and to, to sort of drift across the countryside in huge, deadly, poisonous fog banks. 50% of Iceland's livestock was killed. The famine that it created on Iceland killed about 25%, a quarter of the people on Iceland. You think to yourself, okay, so Iceland had a volcano in the 1780s. Big deal. Why was it the most destructive in history, in terms of human life? Well, the haze, this poisonous weather, spread globally. Some records say this. The weather became very hot, causing severe thunderstorms with large hailstones that were reported to have killed cattle until the haze dissipated in autumn. The winter of 1783 and 84 was very severe. Another record from Gilbert White, um, who was... Um, a horticulturalist, he recorded 28 days of continuous frost and the extreme weather created by this haze cloud of poisonous gas that went as far as Japan, killing people that far away, um, caused hundreds, even thousands of additional deaths all across Europe. And in France in particular, what happened is the sequence of extreme weather events resulted in, surprisingly, a surplus harvest in 1785. This haze resulted in actually really good crops. Lots of people died, but the crops were really good in 1785. And what did that do? Well, that meant that the price for grain dropped and rural workers who did not own the farmland starved. 
And then following that, there were years of droughts and bad winters and, and terrible dry summers and a violent hailstorm in 1788 that destroyed the crops. And all of these meant that by the late 1780s, the people in France who were at the bottom of the social order were starving and desperate. This, by the way, this volcano killed five million people worldwide and dropped temperatures by up to five degrees in the United States of America, let alone elsewhere in the world. Now, Lucky was only one factor in a decade of climatic issues that occurred just before the French Revolution. There was another volcano that was erupting in 1785. And as well as that, El Nino patterns were, were growing from 1789 through to 93. In 1788, a massive hailstorm spread over southern France, and it was so monstrous that it brought down hares and partridges and, and killed, uh, ripped branches from trees. There was a winter that was so cold that the French had seen nothing like it for a hundred years. And all of these things built and built and built and built God using weather and weather and weather and weather until... 14th of July, 1789, the people could take no more and the French Revolution occurred. I think that's amazing. God has such intricate control of the weather that he can ensure that events happen exactly when he wants them to happen. Stormy wind fulfilling his word. And we're going to finish now um, by thinking about one final storm, because there is a storm coming, isn't there, young people? There's a really, really big storm coming called the Battle of Armageddon. And if God chose to use weather in all of these events in prophecy, of course he's going to use weather to finish all of the Bible prophecies and to bring about the establishment of his son's kingdom. Now, I want to show you a video that uh, I've had for some time. Some of you will have seen it before, others not. This, this, is, uh, this is a video that I saw a long time ago flying to New Zealand. I, I'd actually been upgraded so that I was sitting in business class. And I thought, well, aren't I good? I'm in business class. And, and the hostess knew I was quite young. She came down and, and uh, she, she offered everyone else a glass of champagne and, and she offered me a glass of orange juice. And I said, I have the champagne, thank you. I was quite grumpy that she thought I was too young to have champagne on this particular flight. And then this movie came in. It's called The Day After Tomorrow. And I sat and I watched this movie and I cried. Because what I was looking at was the events that are definitely going to happen in this world when God uses his stormy powers to fulfill his word. Psalm 48 verse 7 says that the ships of Tarshish will be destroyed by a great east wind. Ezekiel 38 verse 22 speaks of overflowing rain and fire and brimstone. 
Job 38 verse 22 speaks of the treasures of the snow and hail that God has reserved for the day of judgment. And Zechariah 14 speaks of the saints as the icy ones. Clearly, God will use the tremendous powers at his disposal to bring about the events that will lead to the establishment of the kingdom. But in the meantime, it's going to be terrible. We're already starting to see that, aren't we? We're in the middle of a pandemic. We're seeing terrible weather events. We're seeing fires like never before and flooding and storm. We're seeing things we've never seen in our lives before. This this is just the beginning of sorrows. And I honestly think this video is not far from realistic for what our neighbours and those around us may well experience when we are taken out of this world to be with our Lord Jesus Christ at Sinai. If ever you want to get motivated to tell your friends, your school friends and your colleagues that Christ is coming, let's let's work it out and be ready for it. This is a motivation. This is something that should inspire us to preach because we don't want anyone to have to go through this sort of an experience, to, to have to be part of this. But instead, we want everyone to be safe with the Lord of the storm, with the God who created heaven and earth and sea and all that therein is. And so I think that's probably enough for tonight. I hope you've enjoyed looking at storms that change the world. And let's hope that we can preach to our friends and those around us and help them to avoid the storm that will definitely change the world. Leave it there.